one of the most cold-blooded murders outrage in Ireland, the Graham murder case, the Rock Island Express robbery, all of this and more crime news for the 18th of March, 1886 on A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. These articles are from the Memphis Appeal. The cowardly, brutal, and bloody murder of 13 Negroes at a point near Granada is an outrage that should be punished as the law demands if it takes every law-abiding man in Mississippi to accomplish it. An atrocious crime, one of the most cold-blooded murders ever committed in Tennessee, a young married woman killed by a mulatto. Special to the appeal, Chattanooga, Tennessee, March 17th. One of the most atrocious and cold-blooded murders ever committed in the state occurred near Loudoun, Tennessee today when Thomas P. Gray, a prominent farmer, returned home about noon from attending a funeral. A horrible spectacle met his eyes. Lying at full length upon the floor of her room was his young wife with her throat cut from ear to ear and her head filled with bullets. Her innocent little babe was sitting near its mother head playing in a pool of blood. As soon as Mr. Gray recovered from the shock, he gave the alarm and a posse was organized. It was soon discovered that a Negro named John Gillespie had committed the terrible deed. About seven miles from Loudon, he was overtaken by a young man named Gideon Gibbons. The Negro did not obey the command to halt and Gibbons shot him through the back. Gillespie was then taken back to Sweetwater where he was jailed. It is the prevailing opinion that he attempted to outrage Mrs. Gray, and when she resisted, he cut her throat and fired a charge of buckshot into her head. The entire section where the crime occurred is in a frenzy of excitement, and the black brute will be lynched tonight. Later, at 10.30 o'clock, a mob of 200 persons got possession of Gillespie. He made a full confession of the crime and will surely hang tonight. Saved his life by his presence of mind, special to the appeal. Chattanooga, Tennessee, March 17th. Tonight, while a leading wholesale grocer, W.B. Mitchell, was sitting at his desk in his office reading his mail, he heard heavy breathing in the room and, supposing it was some animal that had crept in, glanced casually around and beheld a Negro within ten feet of him hidden behind the desk with a double-barrel shotgun in his grasp leveled at the gentleman's head. The Negro did not know he was discovered. Mr. Mitchell, with wonderful coolness, proceeded to open his mail, then carelessly left the store. He immediately notified the police, and the Negro was captured in the building. He confesses that he was sent there by two professional cracksmen to remain there until the store was locked and then to let them in. A heavy burglary was then to be committed. The store is being watched for the principals. Outrages in Ireland, Cork, March 17th. At the Assises today, Justice O'Brien said that the moonlight outrages continued, but they appeared to be rather for the purpose of robbery than for political purposes. Ten Negroes shot down by a mob in a courthouse near Granada, Mississippi, one of the worst tragedies that ever occurred in the state, the Graham case. Special to the appeal. Granada, Mississippi, March 17th. News of a terrible tragedy enacted at Carrollton, an interior town 24 miles southwest of Granada, was received here this evening. Fifty men rode into town, repaired to the courthouse where 13 Negroes were waiting for a trial to commence when the white men walked in, shot ten of them dead, and mortally wounded the other three. 
It grew out of the attempted assassination of James Liddell, a prominent citizen who was shot and seriously wounded by these Negroes several weeks ago. The Graham murder case, special to the appeal. Springfield, Missouri, March the 17th. At a late hour last night, Graham sent a letter to the Herald stating that Charlie told the exact truth yesterday on the witness stand, corroborating the statements that Mrs. Malloy was on his lap at Elgin and in bed with him at Washington and on the Malloy farm. Today, Charlie was cross-examined and is still on the stand. He bears up well and does not contradict himself in any essential matter. He told of quarrels at Elgin between his mother and Cora and Mrs. Malloy. The latter was deeply affected and broke out crying. Cora showed no emotion. The families visited each other in sickness, notwithstanding the quarrel, and during the Elgin flood, the Grahams, when driven out of their house, went to the Malloys. Charlie repeated the statement that Mrs. Malloy frequently sat on his father's lap in her house at Elgin. His father put his arms around her. Mrs. Malloy had sat in witness's lap. He tried to reach around her, but she was too big. The witness gave in detail the life of the family at Washington and told of quarrels between his father and mother on account of Mrs. Malloy. Charlie never heard his father say anything about Mrs. Malloy trying to make a better man out of him, but had heard other folks say it. Every effort to break the witness down has failed. The cross-examination was really beneficial to the state. Court adjourned with Charlie on the stand. Local interest in the case is unabated, and the courtroom is crowded daily. Frequent listeners will remember the Rock Island Express robbery, which has been covered in the last two episodes. Chicago, Illinois, March 17th. Within the past 24 hours, events have transpired which have established the conviction among detectives that Mike Humphreys is one of the men who robbed the Rock Island train and murdered Kellogg Nichols. Humphreys' supposed accomplice in the crime is known to the police by the, the name of Texas. He is a broad-shouldered, muscular fellow, 5 feet 8 or 9 inches in height, weighs about 170 pounds, and has jet black hair and mustache. Texas was known here to certain detectives as an ex-stage robber. He came from the far west, and though not at all communicative about his past, it leaked out that he left the west to avoid the ardent pursuit of a lynching party. It is said that he and Humphreys were companions. They were seen together very often in the neighborhood of South Halstead and Madison Streets. About three weeks ago, they disappeared very suddenly, the detectives as yet not being able to understand why, and this phase of the matter is made still more complicated by conflicting statements to the effect that both men were seen on the west side during the latter part of the last week. At all events, an investigation into the career of both men has led to the positive belief that they are the guilty parties. An embezzler brought back from Canada, Chicago, Illinois, March 17th. Detective Matthew W. Pinkerton returned last night from Detroit, having in custody Lewis Bennett, one of the clerks lately employed by N.K. Fairbank & Company, who is charged, together with Frank Esbury, of having embezzled several thousand dollars from the firm, and both of whom fled to Canada about three weeks ago. Mr. Pinkerton ascertained a short time ago that both Bennett and Esbury were in Sarnia, Canada and proceeding to Detroit last week, succeeded by means of telegrams and letters and also by conversations which he held with Bendit by telephone and inducing him to leave Sarnia and come to Detroit where he was arrested and agreed to return to Chicago without requisition papers. Bendit refused to make any statement whatever when seen by a reporter. Esbury is still living in Sarnia under an assumed name. 
commuted to life imprisonment. Wilmington, North Carolina, March the 17th. Henry Scott, a Negro sentenced to be hanged here today for rape, has had his sentence commuted to imprisonment for life by the governor. A petition for commutation was signed by the judge before whom Scott was tried and a number of jurors and prominent citizens. Executive clemency was exercised on the ground that guilt was technical and the prisoner considered mentally very weak. A Woman's Queer Freak, Buffalo, New York, March 17th. Laura Miller, aged 19 years, hanged herself in the attic of her parents' house in the city last night because she was forbidden to attend roller skating rinks. Attempted train wrecking in Texas, St. Louis, Missouri, March 17th. A special from Marshall, Texas, to the Post-Dispatch states that an attempt was made there last night to wreck the northbound passenger train on the Texas and Pacific Railroad. Some men, as yet unknown, removed a rail from the track on the bridge a short distance north of Marshall, but the mischief was discovered shortly before the time for the train to pass, and great loss of life and property was thus averted. The Graham Murder Case, St. Louis, Missouri, March 17th. A special from Springfield, Missouri, to the Post-Dispatch says, In the Graham Murder Case today, Charlie Graham gave further testimony of a damaging nature regarding the relations of his father with Mrs. Malloy and Cora Lee before and after the murder. All efforts by counsel for the defense to confuse the witness were futile, and the boy adhered to his former statements. The Woman with the Diamonds, Louisville, Kentucky, March 17th. What appears to have been an attempt to rob Mr. and Mrs. W.J. Florence, the well-known theatrical people, took place Sunday night on the Louisville, New Albany, and Chicago Road near Greencastle, Indiana. Mr. and Mrs. Florence occupied a private car en route to Louisville. At Greencastle, three rough-looking men jumped onto the platform of the car and tried to force an entrance. Seeing Mrs. Florence, one of them said, That's the woman with the diamonds. The brakeman took a stick and beat them back and forced them off the platform. Mrs. Florence thinks the men were after her diamonds, all of which were on the car. Shot by a burglar, Richmond, Virginia, March 17th. Police Sergeant Brooks was shot early this morning just before the fast mail left the city while attempting to arrest a burglar who was trying to board the train. The burglar had been discovered attempting to blow open the safe of Herman Schmidt Grocer and was traced to the depot. He escaped after shooting Brooks and exchanging several shots with another officer. Brooks' wound is very severe, but it is not believed to be fatal. This next story is not a crime story, but it is interesting. Cremated by natural gas, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, March 17th. The remains of Milton Fisher of Columbus, Ohio, were incinerated in Samson's natural gas crematory this morning. The body was placed in the retort at 7.30 o'clock, and in less than an hour it was reduced to ashes. This was the first time natural gas has ever been used for crematory purposes, and its advantages were apparent at once. The body was accompanied here by the relatives of the deceased and several Columbus journalists. Regular listeners will remember this next story and might wince. This is about the penitentiary. Jackson Clarion. The Senate yesterday passed a bill making the railroad commissioners a board of control of the penitentiary and authorizing the board to lease the convicts, preferably for work on railroads, levees, etc. This bill also authorizes and requires the board to lease the penitentiary to the Gulf and Ship Island Railroad Company should the company indicate its desire to accept it on condition that some of the convicts will be worked on farms for the sum of $20,000 a year and the first mortgage bonds of said company. The vote in favor of the bill was overwhelming and is as follows. Yeas, 
Mr. Austin, Barron, Bachelor, Benford, Booth, Boyd, Brenham, Buchanan, Casey, Dixon, Dodds, Gage, Gales, Gully, Gayton, Hamilton of Holmes, Houston, Luce, Morris, Packwood, Reynolds, Ross, Seal, Simpton, Simington, Smith, Sykes, Thrasher, Whitney, and Yeager, 29. Nays, Mr. Boone, Burkett, Dillard, Kemp, Lovell, Powell, and Walker, 7. Memphis Appeal, Thursday, March 18, 1886. The Negro in California. The people of California have sworn in their hearts the Chinese must go. They cannot and will not endure much longer. A pestiferous and intolerable curse which they demonstrate is a blight upon the state. They are holding public meetings and appealing to Congress for protection and boldly proclaim that self-defense, the first law of nature, will impel them to take decisive measures for the expulsion of the Asiatic curse unless Congress immediately enacts a law to prevent the open or secret influx of the common enemy whose presence is a menace to society and destructive to the best interest of the people, dangerous to their domestic peace and fatal to every industry. It is evident that the people of California are standing over a fearful volcano which will explode sooner or later. They take the, the position that society is invested by natural laws with an inalienable right of expelling whatever is dangerous or fatal to its peace and prosperity, and as the Chinese have infected the whole state with a deadly plague. There is, they say, no law, human or divine, which compels a people to tolerate an element for its own destruction, and unless something to be done by Congress to protect the people from an enemy more terrible than an army with banners, there will, they threaten, be an uprising of the people, and the Chinese will be murdered by the light of their own filthy dens. The San Francisco Examiner proposes to solve the labor problem in California by substituting Negro labor for the Chinese labor, which the people are determined to drive from the state. The Examiner says, The announcement that a delegation of colored men are in New York to make arrangements for an immigration of colored people from Louisiana to California will be received with pleasure throughout the state. It may be a medium through which we may solve our labor difficulties. There is no question that the southern states can afford to send us an important element of labor, and it is equally true that no gift could be made which would be so highly appreciated in California. To exchange Chinese labor for the intelligent and docile industry of the Negro would be an event of the very last importance of the people of this coast. The ready and convenient avenue of domestic service could be filled at once. The problem to the fruit growers would be solved, and the varied and comprehensive details, which were usually so difficult a solution when one kind of service is to be supplanted by another, would be settled at once. Nothing could happen to the people of California so beneficial and significant at the present time as a large Negro immigration from the South. It would indeed supply a long-felt want. The Negro race is rapidly increasing, and unless dispersed, the colored population of the South will become too dense to prosper. The Negro can find ample room in the South for the next century, and he is too poor to engage in hazardous experiments. He is ignorant, superstitious, credulous, and is continually discovering some new El Dorado into which they pour in a constant stream. But they gradually return to the South, which they never loved or appreciated until they had learned its value in the hard school of adversity. Except in a few localities where there are abnormal causes, the relations between the whites and blacks are most amicable. The colored people have discovered that freedom means work, and they are accumulating property and educating their children. The whites and blacks of the South have made a virtue of necessity and surmounted their prejudices and now regard their interests as identical. The industrious colored people are prosperous and happy. It is only the indolent, indolent, indolent that engage in rash and visionary adventures, such as immigrating 
to Kansas and California among strangers and without money. At the danger point, the labor troubles are beginning to assume an alarming aspect. The United States Marshal of the Eastern District of Texas have found it necessary for the protection of property to purchase Winchester rifles. This is a step that shows a serious condition of affairs. When strikes on as large a scale as is now in operation the United States begin, there is every intention at the start to conduct them quietly. But as the days go on with no earnings coming in, when wife and children are but scantily supplied with the necessities of life, the temper of the husband and father becomes soured and his feelings excited, and calm reasons fail to guide his actions. When this crisis comes on, there is danger. Events that at another time would be taken with coolness cannot now be regarded dispassionately. Arrived at this point, the public peace is at the mercy of incident, and any cause of provocation, real or fancied, excites slumbering discontent to the pitch of uncontrollable fury. Violence is the consequence, and hate and passion bring deplorable results. That there are already signs of such a crisis, the call for weapons by a United States Marshal makes evident. So widely spreads the effects of the attitude of labor and capital toward each other in this country that even one of the large religious bodies becomes entangled in the whirl and commotion, and the Roman Catholic Church in the United States is driven to a point in which it seems likely to be viewed as an adversary to the Association of the Knights of Labor, a position its people certainly would not willingly occupy. In many other ways, grievances, annoyances, hindrance to business, and a spreading feeling of uneasiness and apprehension is becoming prevalent. There is a condition of things that public sentiment will certainly not allow to continue long. How is it to be put to an end? It will not do, on the one hand, to deprive employers of the power to regulate and manage their own establishments. On the other hand, the general love of justice will not countenance the uttered subjection of labor to capital by the use of policemen and soldiers. Amical arbitration appears to be the only resource and arc of safety, but this resource of capitalists appear reluctant to make available. The strikers of the Gould Roads have applied for it and have been refused. From whatever motive, motives this reluctance arises, it places the employers at a disadvantage before the public. There is another thing that works against them. On many occasions, wages have been declared too high by the employers, and notice of less pay given, or workmen, believing their pay too small, had demanded an advance. Frequently, declines have been insisted upon and advances refused under such circumstances. On the plea that the state of business necessitated a decline or forbid an advance, and the result has been a strike. Then, in many cases, the effort to reduce wages has ceased or the advance demanded conceded. The workmen see that the employer still carries on his business, apparently doing very well, and they draw the conclusion that unless the strike had been made capital, would they have pocketed more from the mutual product of capital and labor than was just. This breeds and encourages strikes, and unless a sense of justice, not a rage for gain, accentuate both capital and labor in their relations with each other, disputes and strikes with all their evils will continue. The unhappy result is before the country today, and when authority has to seek a resource in firearms, that result is of a more painful as well as dangerous character. Through the heart speeds the messenger of Miss Norman's vengeance. A.H.F. Arnold meets with instant death at the hands of the woman he had betrayed. The store of J.J. Arnold, number 109 Beale Street, was the scene of a tragedy last night that will bring ruin and disgrace to more than one name. It is the old story of a woman wronged who, mad with the sense of her shame, seeks with the blood of her betrayer to wipe out her disgrace and his. 
The details of the crime as developed by the testimony of eyewitnesses and the statement of the wrong woman disclose a deliberate, well-planned, and mercilessly executed plot to rid the world of the man who had wrecked her life and honor. From her own lips comes a sad story that follows, as told to an appeal reporter at the station house last night. Quote, I have known Henry Arnold for many years. We were children together and playmates from childhood up. He has been keeping company with me for years. I am 21 now and never had any other lover. I had all the confidence in the world in him. I trusted him blindly. About 18 months ago, under promise of marriage, he accomplished my ruin. A girl, baby nine months old, is the living evidence of our sin. I begged him repeatedly to make the only reparation he could, but he would put me off under one pretext or another. Now he would plead poverty as an excuse for deferring our marriage. Then some other pretext would occur to him, and I waited and waited until my heart grew sick with deferred hope. But still I despairingly hoped that he would in the end be true to me. One day, about six weeks ago, he was married in the Catholic Church to Miss Nellie Kelly. I did not hear of it till two days afterward. The news struck me like a thunderbolt. It was so sudden, so unexpected, so horrible that I fainted dead away when I heard from it. From that time to this, I have no longer been mistress of myself. I determined to kill him and only awaited his return from his wedding tour to carry my design into effect. I bought me a Smith & Wesson pistol a day or two after I heard of his marriage, and I used it tonight. I am not sorry I did it. I would do it again tomorrow, under the same circumstances. I had intended to kill Arnold about two weeks ago, was but was prevented by the interference of Mr. Wiggins, a clerk in Arnold's store. The unfortunate woman who made this statement is about 21 years of age, tall, elegantly proportioned, and handsome. Her rich auburn hair was combed back from her forehead in simple fashion, and no bangs disfigured her brow, pale brow or overshadowed her frank and fearless eyes. While telling her story, she was cool, calm, and collected, not betraying by a quiver of her muscles the strong agitation under which she must doubtless have labored when she committed the fatal deed. Her stalwart father, who stood nearby, was much more deeply moved, and tears moistened his eyes, and his voice shook with emotion as he repeated the story of his daughter's wrongs. She, on the other hand, sat quietly and with apparent unconcern on the bed in her cell, leisurely chewing gum and impassively observing what was passing around her. Only once did she betray animation. A policeman came in from the scene of the killing and reported the death of Arnold. How did the ball arrange? asked someone. It pierced his heart, was the reply. All right, said she. I haven't been practicing all this time for nothing. All I want to know is that he is dead. She uttered these words with as little apparent emotion as most women portray when ordering their dinners. She is an only daughter and has two brothers, a mother and a father, all of whom seem to have cherished plans of vengeance against the despoiler of their honor. The family live about eight miles from the city, and the girl drove to town this afternoon in a buggy, accompanied by her father on horseback, who, as will appear from the testimony of eyewitnesses to the killing, was near Arnold's store when the fatal shot was fired. Miss Norman, when interviewed at the jail, was neatly dressed in a black merino dress with a black velvet jacket that fitted her closely. Around her neck, she wore a scarf of white crepe folded crosswise and fastened by the plain gold brooch. She wore no other jewelry. Before the interview was concluded, another prisoner was brought in and locked in the same cell with Miss Norman. She was a small, black-eyed woman, neatly dressed in gray, who gave her name as Maddie Yates and was charged as being an accessory before the fact. She denied the charge stoutly, affirmed her ignorance of all knowledge of the affair, and begged to be allowed to go home to her two-year-old baby. 
she appealed to Miss Norman to establish her innocence, and Miss Norman attempted to do so by affirming that she had not seen Mrs. Yates before in 15 years. The stern guardians of the law would not release Mrs. Yates, however, and subsequent developments proved the wisdom of their course. The coroner's inquest. At 8.40 o'clock, Justice Thomas Fleming summoned a jury and held an inquest over the body at the store of J.J. Arnold, the dead man's brother, where the shooting occurred. The dead man's body lay stretched upon the floor and presented a ghostly sight. Though, not, but, one, though but one shot was fired, and that into the back, the dead man's face was smeared with blood, doubtless due to a hemorrhage from the mouth of his, as his life throbbed away. His thin and dark mustache was glued to his lips and cheeks by the dark fluid, and here and there were spots on his face the size of a penny where no blood had gone, and where the white and colorless skin shone out pale as marble. He lay in his shirt sleeves, but his white shirt showed no track of blood except where the ball had been extracted. Dr. W. W. Taylor, who was the first to arrive, made a post-mortem examination and extracted the ball, which had entered the back below the left shoulder, ranged toward the heart, and was cut out under the skin a little above the left nipple, having evidently passed through the heart. Dr. Herbert Jones arrived during the course of the inquest, but made no examination of the body. The jury was composed of H. P. Duncan, I. Coleman, H. W. Crowell, J. W. Reed, J. R. Chambers, A. J. Bender, and George H. Battier. The first witness examined was Charles Arnold, Arnold, brother of deceased, who testified that about 7.30 o'clock, a little woman, dressed in gray, whose name he did not know, came into the store and asked for mixed pickles. He told her he had none and directed her next door. She looked around rather suspiciously, but left the store and was joined by another woman, and the two passed the store, going in the direction of Main Street. His brother Henry, who had just entered the rear of the store from the yard, advanced and asked, Who are they? And witness replied, I do not know. Henry then stood in the doorway, facing Hernando Street. The next thing he saw was the figure of a woman darting swiftly toward his brother and firing a pistol into his back. His brother fell, and the woman fled across the street in the direction of Hernando Street. P.S. Schneider testified that he heard the shot and saw a woman running in the direction of Hernando Street. He pursued her, overtook her, and caught her by the arm. She grabbed a pistol from a basket she carried and said, Turn me loose, and he turned her loose. Then a tall, elderly man came to the woman's rescue. Then Policeman Randolph came up and arrested the woman, who quietly surrendered. Officer Randolph heard the shot, saw a woman running up Hernando Street, gave pursuit, caught her in the company of a tall man at the corner of Gayoso, and arrested her. She made no resistance, but refused to give up her pistol. Her and her father, who was the tall man, both insisting that she needed the pistol to protect her life from the vengeance of a pursuing mob. At the station house, she gave her name as Emma Norman. The pistol was a Smith & Weston improved 38 caliber, and the ball extracted from the wound was of a corresponding size. The verdict of the jury was, quote, We, the jury, find that H.F. Arnold came to his death in the following manner, by a pistol ball from a pistol in the hands of Miss Emma Norman, unquote. Mr. Wooten, who keeps at number 107 Beale Street next door to Arnold's and said to an appeal reporter, the little woman came in and asked for pickles. I showed her some, and she ordered ten cents worth. Her female companion stood in the doorway. The little woman urged me to hurry. Then I heard a shot. The lady in the doorway had disappeared, and the little woman left hurriedly up the street in the direction of Main Street. Carrollton Tragedy. Additional details of the shooting of the Negroes in the courthouse, the cause for the terrible crime. 
New Orleans, Louisiana, March 17th. A Winona, Mississippi special to the Picayune says, At Carrollton today, a fearful tragedy occurred in which ten Negroes were killed and three wounded. Some weeks ago, two Negroes attempted to assassinate J.M. Liddell, Jr., inflicting some painful but not serious wounds. The Negroes engaged in this dastardly attempt are known to be the most defiant and lawless in the country. And since the attempt on Mr. Lindell's life had been more openly defiant than ever, for some reason, not known, they swore out a warrant a few days ago for Mr. Liddell's arrest. It was at this trial today that the killing occurred. The Negroes present were mostly armed. About one o'clock, a party of armed men, numbering about 40 or 50 persons, rode up to the courthouse, dismounted, and entered the building at once, commenced firing on the Negroes with the above result. They then returned by the same route they came. They do not live near Carrollton. A later dispatch from Winona throws a little more light on the assassination. At the trial, about 20 colored men were present. The 50 white men, well-mounted and well -car each carrying a Winchester rifle, came galloping up and surrounded the courthouse. They then fired into the building, instantly killing 10 Negroes and wounding three others so that they died soon after. And with the exception of a few who escaped through a window, all the other Negroes in the building were wounded, some of them seriously. The trouble between Liddell and the Negroes occurred three weeks ago. Liddell had interfered in a row between two Negroes and afterwards heard the crowd cursing him. He walked up to them and inquired why they were abusing him. An altercation ensued and a number of shots were fired, Liddell being severely wounded. Fatal Stabbing Affray, Grand Junction, Tennessee, March 16th. March 14th, Bert Middleton stabbed Will Snyder. March 15th, William Estep stabbed Clinton Tucker. Accounts unknown, they were all schoolboys. The next section of the paper is titled City News. The jury in the McNeil case failed to agree yesterday. McNeil's sister was fined $50 for attempting to bribe and sentenced to 10 days in the workhouse. Deputy Sheriff Walter Pope, accompanied by Dr. Ward and Dr. Harry Goodyear, left last night for Nashville in charge of seven lunatics whose removal to the asylum in Nashville has been decided upon. Their names are E. Scarfield, Louis Egger, Egeline Proctor, Mary Morgan, Susan Minkin, Charles Hurst, and James DeClef. Police court proceedings yesterday. Please, Scott, colored, wife whipping and abusive language, fined $5, paid. Tom Wilkerson, white, vagrancy, fined $3. John H. Accord, white, drunk and disorderly, fined $5. S.T. Cavelock, white, plain drunk, fined $2. George Wood, colored, disorderly and resisting an officer, fined $50. W.F. Shippey, white, violating sidewalk ordinance, fined $10. F.A. Jones and Charles Brown, driving stock through public streets, fined $50 each. That's the crime news for the 18th of March, 1886 from the Memphis Appeal. Thank you for listening. Please join me again for another episode of A Year of Crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.